You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. It seems like on multiple fronts, our country is coming unraveled. With COVID-19, we're all navigating something that none of us have ever experienced before. As we're being confronted with racial injustices, uh, we're asking questions about our own history and about what we can do to make a better future. I am mindful of these things as we begin a new preaching series today in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, The story of Ezra and Nehemiah is not about us. It's not about our situation. But I do think this story and the message of this book speaks powerfully to us today. First, the story itself is about the people of God returning from exile to rebuild their city and their lives. And so we will feel the connection to that as we think about rebuilding our own city, our own lives, our economy, our communities. Um, Just the whole idea of rebuilding resonates with us right now. Second, the way the story is written communicates a larger message. The message of the book is that Jesus is our only hope. I know we're in the Old Testament, but that's the beauty of the Old Testament, is that it points us to Jesus. As we read this book, we're going to feel our need for Him, because only He can save us. Only He can heal us. Only He can reconcile us. Jesus is our only hope. That's the big picture of Ezra and Nehemiah. Return from exile, rebuilding Jerusalem, and Christ, our only hope. We're going to get into the guts of all of that this summer. Today, I just want to introduce the book by exploring two questions. First, why were they in exile? And that that kind of speaks to the historical context of the book. The second question is, what does the story of their return from exile teach us? And that speaks to the narrative structure of the book. So, But let's start with the first question. Why were they in exile? Look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. All right, stop there. Nine words in we already know that something has gone really wrong. Because in the Old Testament, God's people are connected to a place, and it's not Persia. So what are we doing here? How did we end up under the rule of Cyrus, king of Persia? If you read down in verse 7, you get part of the answer. Verse 7 mentions Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, And in 589 B.C., he conquered Jerusalem. Verse 7 tells us that he took all of the vessels in the temple and he put it in the house of his own gods. But he also took the Israelites, the people, captive into Babylon. Later, Babylon's conquered by Persia, so that's where the story opens. But this whole period in the Bible is called the Babylonian exile. So that's what happened. But why did it happen? Now, that gets us to something deeper. That taps into the theme of exile that runs throughout the whole Bible. 
Remember, in the Old Testament, God's people are connected to a place. So, in the beginning, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden. This is where God's presence was. It was the headquarters of their mission to subdue the earth. Eden was home. And there was one condition for life in Eden, and that was to obey the one command that God gave them. But they disobeyed. And so they're banished from the garden. They're sent into exile. As the story unfolds in Genesis, fallen humanity in exile leads us to the ancient city of Babylon. This is where the people built the great Tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. And Babel represents the collective effort of humanity to save ourselves. And so for their own good, God scattered them. That's Genesis 11. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram, and he leads them into the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. Later, Abram's descendants would end up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and when God delivered them, he led them into Canaan, the promised land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was like a little restored Eden. It was home. And there was one condition for living in the land, and that was to keep the covenant that God made with them through Moses. If they keep the commandments, they'll be blessed. If they disobey the commandments, they'll be cursed or disciplined, because God will always be faithful to his promises. And what do you think happens? They did not keep the commands. Not just like a little bit, but a lot. Over and over The prophets called them to repentance, and over and over they warned them of the consequences that were going to come if they didn't repent. But they hardened their heart, and they continued in their wicked ways. And so, just like Adam and Eve were sent into exile, Israel was sent into exile. And how did that happen? Nebuchadnezzar. One of the things you're going to see in these books and really throughout the Bible is that God accomplishes his purposes through historical processes and often through pagan kings. Nebuchadnezzar was not a good dude. But listen to what God says in Jeremiah 25. Because he's speaking to Israel, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Not servant in the way that he worships God, but servant in the sense that God's going to use him as a tool to accomplish his purposes. And I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. They understood why they were in Persia. They were there by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and, more importantly, by the decree of God. When you get to Nehemiah 9, uh, there's this really awesome prayer slash sermon that recounts much of the story that I just shared with you. And I just want to read some pieces of it so you can get a sense for how they understood their situation. Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of Canaan, 
and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you brought them into the land. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And here's his conclusion about their situation. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You see, the Israelites knew why they were in exile. They were there because of their sin and rebellion against God. Rebuilding Jerusalem was not going to just be about infrastructure and economy and a way of life. First and foremost, it was about restoring relationship with God. The first thing they built was an altar where they offered sacrifices for their sins. Multiple times they confessed not only their sins, but the sins of their fathers. So just as a note of application here, I was thinking about the gospel and race forums that we did last year, and I was reminded of the exhortation that Pastor Aaron Reyes gave us. We were all asking, what can we do? And his suggestion was, we can learn to lament. That's one of the reasons we did the series on lament in December. Because listen, the recent deaths of George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and Michael Ramos and others, and the escalating tension in our country, this is not happening in a vacuum. There is a long history of racism and injustice in our country, and we need to understand that and lament that and confess not only our sins, but the sins of our fathers. There's more to do than that, but that's where the work starts, with lament and confession and repentance. Israel knew their history. But the story of exile doesn't end with them. Tim Mackey points out that Babylonian exile became a symbol for something more universal. It was a symbol of a deep sense that we have that things are not as they ought to be, of this longing that we have for some other place, for home. Exile, he says, is the human condition. I think that's true, because don't you see that we fall into the same kinds of patterns and ruts that Israel did? We keep building our lives on the false hopes of money and status and power, comfort and being right. In all of our attempts to save ourselves, we inevitably exclude and push down others. Mackey says, we live in an exile of our own making. I think you can see that in really simple examples. Like, think about how imprisoned we are to our standard of living. 
If justice meant lowering your standard of living, would you do that? Think about how imprisoned we are to our image. If well-being meant vulnerability and honesty with others, would you do that? We are far from home, and we don't know how to get back. We are utterly lost. That's exile. Here's the good news. Jesus left his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God, and he came here to seek and save the lost. He entered into our exile to show us the way home. He's the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. To follow Jesus means to stop building our lives on the things of this world. This is not our home. Peter says we are sojourners and exiles in this world. But we've been sent here by Jesus. And so the way we navigate this world is to build our lives on Him. We do that by following His way, obeying His commands, doing the work of the kingdom. And we wait for Him to return, for that day when He will transform this world into our true home. The story of exile teaches us about the human condition. Hard-hearted, far from home, utterly lost. Now, the second question. What does the story of return from exile teach us? For that, now we're going to look closer at the Ezra-Nehemiah story, and particularly the way the story is written. So let's go back to verse 1 and see how the story is set up. Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. And the proclamation is, is that he would let Israel go back to Jerusalem to rebuild uh, the temple, the house of the Lord. But this reference to Jeremiah is a big deal. It raises our expectations, not only for the return from exile, but for an even greater return, a, a new covenant. Listen to what God promised through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So, if you're following the storyline of the Old Testament, and you know this promise in Jeremiah, you get to Ezra 1, and this reference to Jeremiah, it, hopes are high. You're thinking, this is it. The, the kingdom is restored. The new covenant is here. Expectations are really high. But then you start reading the story, and every time things start to look up, there's this downturn. 
Listen, that's intentional. The story is written in a way to tell us that this is not the final restoration. It's pointing us to something more. And specifically, we see that in these three parallel stories that are told in Ezra and in Nehemiah. They all have the same arc. There's an Israelite leader who is sent by a Persian king to rebuild Jerusalem. The leader faces opposition. The people overcome the opposition, and they achieve great success with God's help, and then a downturn. Each cycle ends with these mixed results. And there's tension as you read it, because they're doing what God called them to do. God is working through them, yet all of it is about something else. It points to something more. Let me just give you a quick overview of these story cycles. In Ezra 1 through 6, uh, we see the first wave of people sent from Persia back to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They rebuild the altar and the temple, but with mixed results. At the dedication of the altar and the foundation of the temple, some people are shouting with joy, but others are weeping just as loud. You can't even tell the difference between the shouting and the weeping. And we're left kind of scratching our heads, thinking, what is going on here? In Ezra 7 through 10, Ezra comes on the scene. He is sent to Jerusalem to teach the people the Torah and to rebuild the community through social reform. And he does. There are moving scenes of people understanding the law, of repenting of their sin, of committing themselves to God. It's it's really awesome. But this story ends in a confusing and maybe even troubling way. Some of the people who returned from exile had married some of those who weren't in exile. And Ezra interprets this as a threat, as a, a corrupting influence. And so he enacts a decree that would annul all these marriages. And we're going to get into why he did that and if it was the right thing to do. But this is how the story ends. We get like this partial list of people who divorce their wives, and then that's it. It's a major downer. Turn the page. We come to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is sent to rebuild the city walls in Jerusalem, and he faces strong opposition. He overcomes the opposition, but there is tension and division among the people. And it's not quite the vision of New Jerusalem that the prophets spoke of. That takes us through Nehemiah 7. Nehemiah 8 through 12 is a grand celebration. The people worship God. They renew their covenant with Him. Everything is looking up. It's a really moving ceremony. Then Nehemiah leaves And in chapter 13, he comes back to see how things are going, and they're not going well. The people have failed in their commitments. In fact, every aspect of the rebuilding effort has been compromised. And Nehemiah is furious, for good reasons. But he goes on this rampage, cursing people, beating people, he's tearing some guy's hair out. Uh, It's strange to say the least, and the book is not 
a happy ending. So, we have this story of three leaders. They're flawed, just like us. But they're good leaders. Uh, They were called by God. They were passionate and sincere in their work. Yet, no matter how hard they worked and how much they prayed, they couldn't accomplish the vision. It was compromised at every front. Why is that? Why couldn't they make it happen? And the answer that the story is giving us is that they couldn't make it happen because they couldn't change the human condition. They could take the people out of exile, but they couldn't take the exile out of the people. Right? Before exile, what was Israel's problem? It was a hard heart. And after exile, what's their problem? It's exactly the same. They need a new heart. That's what God promised them in Jeremiah 31. I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and I will put my spirit within you. We, um, we love the idea of a fresh start, don't we? Man, if we could just get a fresh start, then things will be different this time. And I'm sure that they had those thoughts. When we rebuild, we're going to do it right this time. You see that in Nehemiah 10. They renew their covenant with God, and they make all these commitments about how they're going to obey His law now. You know, the same law that their fathers could not obey. They think they're going to get it right this time. And they don't. A fresh start sounds great. But that's not what we need. We need a new heart. That is why Jesus is our only hope. The unfinished work of these three leaders points us to the true and better leader who delivers us from sin and restores us from the inside out. This is the power and the beauty of the gospel Just listen to these two verses. First from 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, the New Testament is filled with this kind of celebration of the new covenant and the new heart. Uh, we're going to get into the details as we go, but the big picture is that Jesus fulfills the old covenant, the covenant of the law, and he mediates with us a new covenant. He gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit in us so that we can walk in his ways. As we study this book this summer, uh, I want us to keep in mind the historical context of exile because it teaches us about the human condition. And as we read this book, I want us to keep in mind the story of return and rebuilding, which teaches us that while there's so much good work to do, uh, we can't change the human condition. 
Only Jesus can do that. Do you feel the tension in that? There's good work to do. But only when Jesus comes will the work be complete. I don't think that most of us like to live in tension. And we tend to kind of drift to one side or the other. So some of us drift toward the side of work. Like we drift toward putting our hope and getting things done. Let's fix the problem. And some of us are overwhelmed by the work or cynical about it. And so we kind of take a posture of disengaged waiting. And listen, both of those miss the mark. And so how do we live in this tension of doing what needs to be done, but also putting our hope in Jesus? I'll close with just this one little thought. As I've been thinking about that question, the phrase that's been in my mind this week is this, we work while we wait. We work while we wait. I think that's a helpful framework as we study this book and and make application to our lives. We work while we wait. This book is about working. So much of it. And we're going to talk about the leadership and the faith and the diligence with which they worked and how that all relates to the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. But this book is also about waiting. In the end, after the work is done, they're left still waiting for the Messiah to come. And we look at this from the other side of the cross. Jesus has come, but we too are still waiting for his return. We work while we wait. Which means, as long as there's injustice, we pursue justice. As long as there's oppression, we advocate for freedom. As long as there's division and bitterness, we strive for peace and unity. As long as people have lost their way, we proclaim the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, and we invite all to come home through faith in him. We work while we wait, because only Jesus can bring the restoration and the justice and the peace that we long for. That day's coming, and until then, we work while we wait. Let's ask God to strengthen us for that work. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.